0: Part 3. The Crossing Chapter 26 As soon as Finn Button stepped out of the captain's cabin, Topper was up to his old tricks. He stuck out his considerable chin, snapped his heels together, and tugged his shirt down over his belly. With a devilish smirk on his face, he called, Captain on deck! And the crew perked and turned. They each stopped their work, shouted, Captain on deck! in acknowledgement and saluted. Topper thumped himself on the paunch and grinned over his mischief. Finn wished she had something to throw at him, something hard, something heavy, something that would leave a mark in the week since the rattlesnake had sailed from Ebenezer. Topper had learned that announcing her arrival on deck was a painful mistake if he was within punching distance. but this time he'd kept well out of reach as he made his announcement. Finn looked around hoping to find a mallet or a hefty block pulley, but fortunately for topper. The crew kept a clean deck, and Finn had to settle for throwing a narrow-eyed glare his way. She put enough effort into it to make it count, and Topper recoiled just as if he'd been physically struck. When Finn took a threatening step in his direction, though, he scurried through a hatchway and out of sight. Ridiculous, Finn thought. The charade had been amusing for a while, but now that Creech was gone, the men seemed to lend it real credit. They'd even voted on it voted her to the office of captain. Finn was certain Topper had put them up to it. Ridiculous. She hauled herself aloft and stood on the main yardarm, with her arms curled around the mast. The horizon was clear. No cloud, no sail. To the west, Carolina's outer banks huddled low and wide. Topper had steered them here, said he knew of a place to hide away for a while, a place the British didn't know of, And wouldn't come snooping. Finn surely didn't know what to do or where to go, and that was exactly why the notion of electing her captain was so unthinkable. She was already wanted for piracy and mutiny and murder. Living up to the title of captain was more burden than she cared to shoulder. Below her, the helmsman called out a course change and heaved the wheel around. The rattlesnake groaned and tilted as they eased westward and slipped into the waiting arms of the outer banks. Finn kept her eyes to the south, straining them toward the horizon for any glimpse of British ships that might have followed. None appeared, and soon they were safely tucked away amid the sheltering isles of the Carolina coast. But Finn's eyes returned again and again to the south, where far off in a Georgia woodland, beyond any threat of British pursuit, there sat a tiny farmhouse on a green field. And upon its porch, she imagined, Peter Lemie waited patient and still she closed her eyes and in an instant her perch atop the mast seemed to change she was in her bell tower again she was a little red-haired girl sitting cross-legged and staring into the distance toward some faraway place out beyond the walls of the ebenezer orphanage then the vision receded as if Finn were being pulled high into the air above the little town At the very last, she saw the white swan atop the chapel's steeple seem to come alive. It twisted and writhed on its pike, trying in vain to break free of its anchor and fly. Then the vision faded away and Finn opened her eyes. The rattlesnake slipped into a cove where a scatter of shanty rooftops peeked over the oat-whiskered dunes. Below her, Topper called out for anchor, and the rhythmic footfalls of the crew answered. Finn climbed down as men untied the ship's skiffs and lowered them into the water. They lumbered at their work. There was little talk and no singing. With Tan gone, the ship's company seemed a lesser thing than it had once been, as if he had somehow bound them together, and without them they were subject to a gradual unraveling. And Jack had been as good as gone, too, lying abed unconscious since they left Ebenezer. A musket shot had severed his leg mid-shin, and the stump was swollen and gray. Dark purple lines ran up his calf to his knee, and he shook, day and night, with a sickness. Topper wouldn't say it, but Finn could read his eyes, and they told her that he saw death in Jack's fever. Finn couldn't believe that. Too many had died already. Nut, at least, was himself, and he tended Jack without complaint. On the shore, a man hobbled over the dunes and waved. He dragged a pitiful boat down to the water and rowed it out to the rattlesnake, while Finn fetched Topper and Armand Defane to help her with Jack. Topper mumbled that it was going to take a lot more than the three of them to manhandle Jack Wagon off the boat, and in the end he was right. It took eight. They had to use the capstan to lower him down to the rowboat like a side of fresh beef. Topper set a watch to keep the ship and gave leave for the rest to go ashore. A handful of the crew climbed aboard the rowboat with Jack, while the rest boarded the rattlesnake's skiffs and followed. On the beach, their host scrambled out of his boat and greeted them. He was long unwashed if the flies attending him were any indication, and he stank of brine and waste. As he approached them, he threw both arms into the air and lifted a rotten-toothed smile. Flanders Topper! Hoo-hee! Come round to snuffle me boots! He croaked at them. Finn stepped back a pace and wrinkled her nose in disgust. "'By heaven, Hank, you still not bathed?' said Topper. He waved a hand in front of his face and squinted his eyes as they began to tear up. "'Never!' cried Hank and threw his arms into the air. Finn Button, meet Hank Dooley. Not bathed now in—' Topper scratched his temple and rolled his eyes and thought, "'What is it now, Hank? Sixteen years?' seventeen. Topper leaned toward Finn and cupped one hand to the side of his mouth. Hank swore off bathing when his wife refused to be driven off by lesser means. She stood him nearly a year before she run for sweeter air. he, I'm glad to be rid of that woman. Hank reckoned he best keep it up, just in the unlikely case she changed her mind and took it in her head to move back in. He ain't risked a bathing in 17 years and, well, you can smell him for yourself. Topper motioned for her to have a closer sniff. Instead, Finn stepped back a pace. Smart lass, said Topper. Hank, this here's Captain Finn Button. I reckon you heard of her. Hoo hoo, said Hank. Give them British a fit, ain't she? Finn shrugged and smiled at him. In spite of Hank's vile aroma, Finn found him somehow likable. Well, come on up, you old dogs, said Hank. Won't be no British round here to bother you. Have a sit. "'Got some geese cooking what I just killed this morning.' They followed Hank over the dunes toward the ragged clutter of houses pitched in the sand, making sure to keep upwind of him as they went. The makeshift village was constructed of the remains of old boats and ships, and nowhere was there a square joint or a straight line. The entire affair was curving this way and that. Dooley's Retreat,' they called it, fearing that even his forswearing of Cuth may not keep his wife away— Hank had likewise shunned all civilization and landed himself amongst the sand and gulls and geese. In the years since, smugglers, pirates, and anyone in want of a place to be unfound for a time had learned Hank's hospitality was second to none, if one could abide the odor. They ducked inside one of the shanty structures and the smell of a roasting goose filled the air. Nut and seven others carried Jack inside and settled him on a pallet by the fire. He moaned and tossed in his fevered sleep, and Nut sat next to him and flinched a bit each time Jack muttered a sound. The other men bustled about and found themselves corners to claim and fall asleep into. Finn did the same, and, hungry as she was, she was fast asleep before the goose finished its roasting. They spent a week in Hank's company, and though the crew was cheerful and content in their leisure, Finn was lonely for Tan's company and for home. Her nights were fitful and long. She awoke often in the dark, startled by the solidity of the ground. Without the ocean to rock her, she felt out of place and set apart from the life that the sea was calling her to. But answering that call meant giving away her claim to any place of earth. Some men could sail the ocean and never really give themselves to it. But others, real sailors, men of salt and timber, they were different. Finn could spot it in a man almost instantly. It wasn't the leathery skin and deep-lined face. It wasn't the sun-bleached hair or the smell of rum and salted meat. It wasn't the calloused hands and the curse-ready tongue. It was something inside, something elemental and rooted deep in the marrow. Such men belonged to the wind and built no landward home. Their foundations were of wave and storm running fluid and deep, deeper than any mine or grave. Any true man of the sea could tell you when he gave himself over to it. It's the moment when men are divided one from another, sailors of a season on one hand, and true men of wind and wave on the other. It's when one man looks toward home, and the other comforts himself in knowing his home is his birth. Giving oneself like that means being cast away set adrift on the world and beholden to nothing, no man, no country, no law but the sea. But the trade of it, the joy of it, is that home is what a man carries with him. And when he pours his blood into a ship and cherishes her and knows her like a lover, his home carries him far and safe across all oceans and vasty deeps. Topper was such a man. His joy was the spray off the bow, and the breeze on his sunburnt pate. Jack was, certainly, as Tan had been, and Armand also, though joy wasn't often in him as a virtue. Finn suspected that Armand was a man not only given to the sea, but lost to it, adrift in monstrous waters. As she lay awake, aware of the unmovable certainty of the world beneath her, Finn felt her own call to that weathered citizenship. She'd felt it for a long time. She longed to give herself to the deeps. The first day, she stood in the tops of the rattlesnake and saw the ocean poured out before her. It was this that frightened her when she thought of Peter. Her heart and soul wanted only two things in the world, Peter and the sea, the anchor and the unknown. The knowledge that she might one day have to choose between them chilled her and she longed for the numbness of sleep. Finn had hoped that undisturbed rest would aid the healing of Jack's leg, but after a week at Dooley's retreat, it looked no different, which was both good and bad, depending on how she thought about it. Jack tossed in his sleep, and rivers of sweat collected on his brow and ran down his face. His fever held him tight, and Finn whispered awkward prayers over him. Praying wasn't something she'd ever quite got comfortable with and trying it out now seemed pointless giving her lack of practice, but she could think of little else to do for Jack and his condition. On the morning of their eighth day ashore, Hank waddled around the fire on his haunches, stoking it back to life and sending great whooshes of foul-smelling wind into any nostril haplessly perched in his way. All about the hovel, men coughed and snorted themselves awake. Hank chuckled in his merriment and placed a fresh catch of fish on the spit for breakfast. Finn was just stretching the sleep from her limbs when a yelp from outside the hovel startled her. The room quickly emptied, and Finn stepped out behind the rest. The rattlesnake stood offshore at anchor, but it had found company in the night. A tall warship waited alongside, and a line of boats was visible between the ship and shore, each filled with blue-coated soldiers of the Revolution. Before Finn could take in the entire scene, a group of twenty soldiers crested the dunes, Some of the crew turned and ran. Others darted back into the shanty to look for weapons, and still others balled up their fists and proclaimed that they'd not be arrested without a sizable fight. Finn backpedaled and looked for an escape route. Then Topper flew past her and ran right into the midst of the oncoming soldiers. Finn was impressed with his bravery until she realized he was laughing. She looked closer and saw that not only did all the soldiers still have their muskets shouldered, but she even recognized two of them, Ned Smithers and Fred Martin. Topper slapped Fred on the back and welcomed him to Dooley's retreat as Finn sighed and relaxed. Let's go inside, Topper. We need you to have a good listen and keep your calm. Fred motioned to the door. Before they could take a step toward it, Hank, who was standing near the hovel and pondering the new arrivals, bent down, picked up a handful of seashells, and began lobbing them at the soldiers. Get back! I ain't going without a fight! he wailed. I ain't goin', I ain't. One of the soldiers unslung his weapon, but Ned ordered him at ease. Just cause I'm dressed fancy don't mean I'm dragging you off to your wife, Hank. But by the blue, if you hit me with one of them shells, I'll drag her back here and scrub you clean to boot. Ned took off his hat and grinned at Hank. Ga, why are you dress like a governor, said Hank. He dropped his handful of shells and scratched himself. Ned shrugged. War's on. Who he? Hank smiled, farted, and danced as he welcomed the Marines into his house. Several of them threw up their hands in disgust, or plugged their noses as he neared them. They cast sidelong glances at Ned, wondering if he hadn't gone quite insane. Ned chuckled. Shall we? He motioned to the door. Finn, Armand, and Topper followed them inside and asked for privacy. The rest of the crew obliged with shrugs and grunts, and Fred ordered a guard posted at the door. All the formality and secrecy made Finn uneasy. The look on Armand's face told her that he felt it too. "'What's this all about, Fred?' Topper asked as he took the spit from the fire and pulled off a blackened strip of fish. "'Where's Jack? We need to talk to him too,' said Fred. He looked toward the door as if he expected Jack to walk through it. "'Jack's hurt,' said Finn. "'He's been in a fever since we left Savannah.' Well, fever or not, he needs to hear this out. He lost his leg. Finn paused as Fred and Ned raised their eyes at each other. Hasn't been himself for nearly a week. He needs a doctor. Topper nodded and grunted agreement as he chewed on his fish. Well, I'll lay it out then. And keep your head. I'm your friend, Topper. Jack's too. And that ain't changed. Topper spit a fishbone into the fire and cleared his throat. Out with it, the both of you. Well, we need to take you in, said Fred. Armand's eyes flicked toward the door. What the hell's that mean, take us in, said Topper with a chuckle. We got orders to arrest you and your crew. Armand bounced to his feet and daggers twirled in his fingers. Topper erupted in laughter as he reached for another strip of fish. Finn found herself somewhere between the two reactions. Part of her wanted to run, far and fast. Another part told her that this was surely a joke. After all, these very men had saved them from the British only days before. "'Sit down, Defane,' said Topper. "'The day Fred Martin arrests me will be the—' "'This ain't a joke, Topper,' said Ned. Finn jumped to her feet. "'Calm down,' urged Fred. "'I said to keep your heads.' Topper protested and Armand took a step nearer the door. His eyes darted about like an animal's. Listen to me already. Topper settled himself and tried to reassure Finn and Armand with a look. Finn stayed tense and ready to run, but she sat back down. Armand dropped his daggers an inch or two, no more. Now what's this all about, Fred? said Topper. Well, after we pulled your necks out of that scrap with the British Navy, we were bound to report their affair. Me and Ned vouched for you, and our captain took us at our word or he'd not have let you go. But it seems someone else got wind of the affair, and listening to the lowly swears of me and Smithers ain't about to sway them. So they sent us out to find you and bring you in. But listen, Topper, hanging ain't what they want. Word is they want to deal with you, or more to the truth of it, with Finn. They want to talk to her. I don't begin to fathom their reasons, but believe me, mate, if I thought they wanted to stretch your neck, I'd have never let them here. You led them right to us? Finn said, her voice raised in anger. Aye, and mind your manner, Captain Button, I don't run my friends up the gallows. We heard you ran north of Savannah, and when we hadn't seen you anywhere else, we reckoned you'd head here to lay aground with Hank till the English got calmed down. But by my own right ear— If I smelt an ill wind, I'd have run them all over the banks and never give you up to any man, especially not a stuffy officer. Fred chuckled nervously. So you just expect us to give ourselves over and be arrested? Finn asked. Well, now, if you'll come quiet and all, then I believe the captain could be urged to let you sail back to Charleston with the Constellation as escort. Finn looked at Topper for counsel. You're the captain, he said as he chewed on a fish. A fine bit of help he was. The entire captain nonsense was now totally out of hand. Everyone was looking at her, waiting for a decision. Well, I'm not going anywhere, she said. From near the door, she heard Armand grunt his approval. Fred shook his head in exasperation. You heard the captain, Topper said with a grin. Outside the shack, Hank howled. The door burst open and an officer entered, followed by two marines with guns. The officer was a stiff, thin man that kept his hands clasped behind his back and his head precisely upright and forward. When he looked from side to side, he swiveled at the waist instead of turning his head. Through Hank's howling, they heard soldiers outside cocking muskets and ordering men to stand fast. Captain, I... started Fred in protest. The captain swiveled toward Fred and frowned. I've heard enough, Sergeant. I gave you the opportunity you asked for, and you failed. Now we do it my way. Seize them. Armand lunged, knives drawn but the Marine at the door was already bringing his musket stock down. In a swift stroke, the stock connected with Armand's skull, and he fell to the ground in silence. Fred yelled and waved his hands in the air. Stop! Stop! he shouted, and Finn had no intention of following that advice. She was on her feet, fists up. Several more Marines filed into the shack and surrounded them. Once more, the captain voiced his order to seize them. The first man to step forward garnered a black eye from Finn for his trouble. As another man threw his arms around her from behind, Finn was comforted by the thought that she hadn't gone without some measure of fight. Topper and the rest put up little protest. They were ferried out to the captain's ship with their hands tied and their questions ignored. Topper sat across from Fred, cursing him for a traitor. Couldn't just do as I asked, could you? said Fred. Tried to make a friendly go of it, and I had to do no end of convincing the captain to get that. Fine lot of good it was. You should be weaseling me an apology, Topper, not the other way around. Topper's eyes shot up in disbelief, and he opened his mouth to see what would come out. Clam up, Topper, spouted Fred. Quiet your trap and listen wise. When the captain sees you, keep your tongue and you'll be glad of it. There's a fair deal to strike for one with an open ear. I make no deals with devils. Fred spat on the deck between his feet and turned to consider Finn. He stared at her hard and long. As if he were gauging a cloud bank that might be worth the trouble to sail around rather than through. When he turned back to Topper, he leaned in close and waited for him to meet his eyes. "For my soul's sake, I hope your lassie captain's got a cooler head and wiser ears, topper. "I've no keen to see your neck stretched on my account." The way Fred talked about her, as if she wasn't there, rankled Finn's sense of place in the world, though she spent plenty of time reminding herself that her station as captain was ridiculous. Being reminded of it by someone else brought her down to earth hard enough to smart. The small boat slipped alongside the ship and a soldier untied Finn's hand so she could climb aboard. Any thought of flight was now out of mind. There was nowhere to go outside of an easy musket shot to the back or a long swim before drowning. Once on deck, the captain instructed his men to see them to the brig, and when Finn didn't move of her own account, a soldier prodded her in the back with his musket. She stumbled forward a step and turned around to shoot a glare back at him. He raised his musket stock, daring her to protest further. At ease, corporal, ordered the captain. He considered his next words carefully and exchanged a look with Fred Martin that clearly relived some past disagreement. Perhaps our guests have been imposed upon enough. The soldier lowered his musket and bowed in deference. I apologize that we must accommodate you and your crew in the brig, Captain Button. But your stay here will not be long. You have questions, no doubt, and I have answers that I will be happy to afford. All things in good time. In the present case, I think lunch shall be as good a time as can be made. He bowed and motioned his hand to the nearest hatch. If you please, Captain. Finn's first inclination was that he was mocking her. His manner, however, was consistent and his crew unamused. She warily bowed in return and proceeded toward the hatch. And, Captain Button, I trust you will report to me any inhospitable service you receive when next we speak, yes? Without a waver of his smile, he cast his eye on the armed men in Finn's escort. Finn smiled at the nearest Marine. I guarantee it, she said.